morning and welcome to the early morning ASI meeting. Before we begin, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to be with us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the interest that you have in our health of body, mind, and soul. And as we open your word and also discover the revelations from science, we pray your blessing upon us. We pray that each heart and mind would be open to receive your spirit of truth that brings comfort and love. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Intelligence is your capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge. Sounds pretty simple. People with high emotional intelligence still have emotions, but they are managing those emotions. Recognizing emotions in others is an important part of emotional intelligence. Managing relationships with others. And that's one of the reasons why emotional intelligence is tied in with leadership. Uh, if there's not relationships, there's no leadership. Uh, and we have to have those social uh, relationships in order to have a true leadership and be able to manage those relationships. And then finally, emotional intelligence, the fifth aspect, is motivating ourselves to achieve our goals. In the middle of that word emotion is the word motion. If it's based on things that are true, that emotion should actually drive us into action. Now, emotional intelligence has been shown to help people think clearer, communicate more effectively. It fosters unity in group settings, one of the reasons why uh, leadership is connected with EQ as well. It will reduce polarizing statements, uh, although it doesn't do that by sacrificing the truth. And it helps people live happier lives. And as mentioned, one of the hallmarks of high EQ is truth. All of those things that are mentioned on the screen are accomplished without compromise or sacrificing the truth. In fact, a lot of people think the only way you can get to unity is to put differences aside. And then you will have unity. It turns out a unity that stands the test of stress and external as well as internal forces is going to be based on bedrock truth. And it's actually truth that unifies. I'll have to apologize. This is a, something that we rigged up uh, on, the, on the screen uh, from our PowerPoint presentation. You can see ours uh, interfacing with the system didn't quite go uh, as planned. But uh, there are ABCs of cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy has been shown to improve emotional intelligence. The A is the activating event. The C is the consequence. First, it's an emotional consequence, then a behavioral consequence. And this outlines traditional psychotherapy. Traditional psychotherapy believes in A to C thinking, that your emotions are simply due to the events in your life. And that actually is not true. Uh, Dr. Ellis, Dr. Beck, and others that uh, forwarded the cognitive behavioral therapy principles that have been shown in randomized trials to significantly improve depression and a lot of other mental illnesses, as well as help EQ, um, has shown that this is not true. We, we do have the activating event. It plays a role. But then we have the belief and then the consequence. And cognitive behavioral therapy recognizes it can't do much about your past days but it can do something about your present bees. 
And if we change the present Bs into what is true, then we can get a very uh, much improved emotional consequence and behavioral consequence as well. And so leadership also has to center in on Bs. True leadership that is based on high emotional intelligence. Research has documented that negative thoughts which cause emotional turmoil nearly always contain gross distortions. The thoughts on the surface appear valid, but you will learn that they are irrational or just plain wrong and that twisted thinking is a major cause of suffering. What's a major cause of suffering? Twisted thinking. And so in our book, The Lost Art of Thinking, we go into the major ways of twisted thinking. We are all prone to them. I occasionally uh, I have to catch myself in a twisted distorted thought. It's based on elements of truth. It seems on the surface to be true, but actually it is somewhat distorted, and then we have to correct those thoughts, and of course that can significantly improve our emotions as well as our behavior. Now there are intelligence that have been shown to be associated with good leadership. Uh, some of this uh, material uh, I've gotten uh, from uh, this book, Character, Strengths, and Virtues, by Dr. Peterson and Dr. Seligman. Dr. Peterson is from the uh, University of Michigan, Dr. Seligman from the University of Pennsylvania. But uh, they have uh, forwarded concepts called positive psychology. Now, tell, it turns out cognitive behavioral therapy helps all of us, but it particularly helps those with diseased minds. But those with healthy minds are advanced through character strengths and virtues. And I'm not going to go through all of them. They outline 32 that have been studied in the psychological literature and the positive things that can take place. It's a scientific book. It goes through these studies and it shows uh, the evidence on the correlations of positive things that can happen when we adopt these, these uh, character strengths and virtues. And it also shows research on how to develop those character strengths and virtues and what is known and what isn't known on these. But the intelligence is associated with good leadership. General intelligence is associated with it. We talked about that yesterday. IQ. Uh, the more IQ, the more logical, the more persuasive, the more influence, etc. Emotional intelligence. We've already talked about that this morning. Social intelligence, which is a little different than emotional intelligence, is very much connected to true leadership. Personal intelligence. Now, what is personal intelligence? Personal intelligence is not connected with the first three. Personal intelligence is recognizing the true strengths that you have and also your limitations and weaknesses. A lot of people with IQ think that they can accomplish just about anything themselves. And they don't recognize their limitations. Did you know there are some people with high IQ who are very dumb in certain areas? And did you know there are some people with low IQ who are very intelligent in certain areas? And so just because you have a high IQ doesn't mean that you can accomplish everything. And so personal intelligence is recognizing your own weaknesses, your own limitations, your own dependency. It's an important part of true leadership. And then what's called hot intelligence. Hot intelligence is gathering information and using it in direct personal relevance for well-being of others and maybe yourself. And so uh, that is called the hot intelligence and relates to the other ones uh, as well. There are other leadership qualities. Honesty, 
has been shown to be a leadership quality, reliability, responsibility, and to have a transformational influence. This is something that is really surfacing in regards to true leadership. When your influence on others actually helps to transform them in a positive way. And so leadership is not just managing. You know, often we uh, think of uh, leadership as just being a manager, etc. Uh, managers don't necessarily transform. They kind of referee. Uh, they're kind of umpires. They try to do the fairness type of thing. Uh, but true leadership goes uh, far uh, beyond uh, that. Now, Abraham Lincoln is considered widely to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest, U.S. president ever. He had leadership qualities, but he had a lot of losses in his life. He lost his job in 1832. He failed in business in 1833. He lost his sweetheart in 1835. This was the love of his life. And that loss particularly sent him into significant depression. Now we talked about it's important to think true and accurate thoughts. But sometimes when we lose particularly a sweetheart, someone of great value, there's a tendency for us to think that our world has ended. Has it ended? There's a tendency for us to think that we will never again be happy. And of course there were other things going on in his life as well. I mean, he was, he was in poverty, he had all sorts of uh, other problems going on, and this was now added to it. And Abraham Lincoln went into severe major depression. In fact, he said that if what I feel could be distributed to the entire human race, there would not be one smile upon the face of the earth. He said if it could be evenly distributed. That's how um, he felt in regards to this. And he suffered what was called a nervous breakdown in 1836. He lost his son to TB at age four in 1850. He failed in running for U.S. Senator from the state of Illinois in 1854 and in 1858. That's just part of the elections he lost. And it turns out leadership is our ability to overcome loss and to go from disappointment to appointment. Leaders who can't have that ability are not going to be true and lasting leaders. And you know, one of the things that sometimes our church is ridiculed because it seems to have been started as a result of a great disappointment. But I can tell you that is really the best way for an organization to start. Because for every disappointment, there's an appointment. And what our believers realized after that disappointment, they looked for the appointment. They realized that they weren't completely in error, there was a lot of truth, there was a lot of spirit, they recognized the leading of the Lord, and instead of giving up, they went from disappointment to appointment. And by the way, every chapter in the book of Daniel starts out with a disappointment and ends with an appointment. And there's a spiritual key to take it from that stage. And so Abraham Lincoln was ability, he had the ability to overcome loss and go from disappointment to appointment and to grow from his losses. It also made him a much more empathetic individual. Abraham Lincoln, unlike many leaders, just had that compassion and love and mercy and forgiveness in dealing with 
from his cabinet staff to family members, uh, but yet he would do that without breaking principle. Just a little, uh, some quotes from Abraham Lincoln. This is after he was elected president. No one not in my situation can appreciate my feelings of sadness at this parting. He's leaving Springfield, Illinois. To this place and the kindness of these people, I owe everything. Here I have lived a quarter of a century and have passed from a young to an old man. Here my children have been born and one is buried. I now leave not knowing when or if ever I may return with a task before me greater than that which rested upon Washington. Was he inflating that? No, he was not. It was true. Without the assistance of that divine being who ever attended him, I cannot succeed. With that assistance, I cannot fail. Trusting in him who can go with me and remain with you and be everywhere for good, let us confidently hope that all will yet be well. That phrase, let us confidently hope that all will yet be well, puts in some doubt in regards to the future. And there was a, a tremendous reason to doubt the future. True leadership involves, however, the character strength of future-mindedness. Future-mindedness is one of those 32 character strengths. They're actually divided into six different categories. And sometimes we call future-mindedness hope. Abraham Lincoln actually used the term, let us hope. And hope, it turns out to be a significant character strength that can be infectious for others. It can be almost contagious. Uh, the ability to transcend the present. And by the way, that's one of the, the uh, significant positive character strengths of being a Seventh-day Adventist. Right in the term itself that, that the denomination is named is the word Adventist. What does Adventist point to? It points to the second coming, which is the blessed hope. And so right there we have our vision. Uh, what our, our focus should be on. And everything that we do should be based on that future-mindedness of that blessed hope in the second coming. And it helps us to have that ability to transcend the present. This is a quote from Character, Strengths, and Virtues. Thinking about the future, expecting that desired events and outcomes will occur, acting in ways believed to make them more likely, and feeling confident that these will ensue given appropriate efforts sustain good cheer in the here and now and galvanize goal-directed efforts. That, that's just a principle. It's a fixed principle of this character strength. And I think we need to emphasize uh, this aspect and have it be uh, present uh, really in all of our discussions as the name uh, brings uh, forward. Other Abraham Lincoln quotes, as you can tell, uh, I have uh, studied uh, a sum into Abraham Lincoln's life. He did have a sense of humor as well, but yet he had a lot of truth. He says, whenever I hear anyone arguing for slavery, I feel a strong impulse to see it tried on him personally. <laughs> I don't know who my grandfather was. I am much more concerned to know what his grandson will be. As I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. This expresses my idea of democracy. Whatever differs from this to the extent of the difference is no democracy. Additional quotes. Important principles, he said, may and must be what? Inflexible. 
I have always thought that all men should be free, but if any should be slaves, it should be first those who desire it for themselves, and secondly, those who desire it for others. And he was very clear on those, on those quotes. He was very clear in articulating that prior to him becoming president, and that's one of the reasons why contention occurred when he was elected. He also said the probability that we may fail in the struggle ought not to deter us from the support of a cause we believe to be just. And so even though he recognized the real opportunity for failure, it did not deter him. This is a quote that is attributed to Abraham Lincoln, but you, can know, you know where he got it from. A house divided against itself cannot stand. That was from the Bible. Abraham Lincoln commonly and frequently read the Bible. Am I not destroying my enemies when I make friends of them, he would say. And that's exactly what he did. The four people that were running against him for the nomination, he ended up putting in his cabinet into close association. And he got into trouble in many ways because those people didn't have altruistic motives like Abraham Lincoln did. And they were still wanting a power. Uh, and I was just uh, talking to... Uh, Mr. Abraham Lincoln himself, who you will see shortly, uh, telling me about the biography that goes into that, that aspect of his life before I came on the podium. He also is practical. He says, when you have got an elephant by the hind legs and he's trying to run away, it's best to let him run. He also said, don't interfere with anything in the Constitution. That must be maintained, for it is the only safeguard of our liberties. A, a tremendous um, um, believer in the Constitution. If we could first know where we are and whither we are tending, we could then better judge what to do and how to do it. Guess who he said that to? His multiple failed generals of the Civil War. We had a major problem, the, the, you know, here we are in the Mason-Dixon line here today. It's kind of interesting, this talk is being given right uh, where you can see, as you walk out of this, the South. Kentucky was aligned with the Confederates in Ohio uh, with the Union. And uh, Abraham Lincoln, we'll get into it, ran into significant problems with poor leadership in his army. And so, of course, this is an important principle. It applies more to just those things. He also gave the definition of a hypocrite, the man who murdered both his parents and pleaded for mercy on the grounds that he was an orphan. You know, it's interesting. We see things like that happening today in certain cases. He also said, you cannot keep out of trouble by spending more than you earn. You cannot bring about price parity by discouraging thrift. You cannot strengthen the weak by weakening the strong. You cannot lift the wage earner by pulling down the wage payer. You cannot help the poor by destroying the rich. These were the fixed principles that Abraham Lincoln believed in. You cannot build character and courage by taking away a man's initiative and independence. He recognized courage and character had to have that initiative and independence. You cannot help men permanently by doing for them what they could and should do for themselves. 
My concern is not whether God is on our side. My great concern is to be on God's side. Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. The best thing about the future is that it comes only one day at a time. I don't think much of a man who is not wiser today than he was yesterday. What kills a skunk is the publicity it gives itself. Now, Ellen White talked about Lincoln. You can find this in the CD-ROM. She says, useful physical labor in earning means to defray their own expenses as far as possible, speaking of the youth, will be greatly to their advantage. Their characters will possess far more real worth if they learn the lesson of self-denial in the school of poverty, as did Presidents Lincoln and Garfield. The best and greatest men, those who have stood boldly for the right, have been self-made men. They had no time to devote to idle amusement, no money to spend in equipping themselves for, for pugilistic performances. And so she honors Lincoln in regards to the toil and poverty, and he was a, a child laborer. He, he knew how to work 12 and 16 hours a day without complaining, even as a young child, to gain a few pennies to be able to sustain himself. Well, the Civil War is what took place between the Mason and Dixon line. By 1860, the majority of slave states were publicly threatening secession if the Republicans, the anti-slave party, won the presidency. Can you imagine an election where multiple states are saying, we're leaving if this man gets elected? South Carolina seceded immediately when Lincoln was elected president by the Electoral College in December 1860. He hadn't even become president yet, and they were withdrawing. Here's what Horace Greeley, editor of the New York Tribune, uh, said, a very famous editor to this day. He said, a few old women with broomsticks could go down there and beat out all the rebellion that there is in South Carolina. If someone with the firmness of Andrew Jackson should go down there and say, South Carolina, where are you going? They would reply, back into the Union again, sir. And so the North was making sport of this. They were thinking this was just something little. It wasn't that major of an ordeal. Abraham Lincoln recognized it was more major than that, but he didn't know how major it was going to become. But right after Horace Greeley wrote that, actually I'm not sure of the time because I didn't see the date when Horace Greeley wrote that, but in January 12, Ellen White was at a, at a church dedication in Parkville, Michigan. James White was the speaker. And after James White spoke, Ellen White came and exhorted the audience in a, in a wonderful um, exhortation. She went and sat down, and she was taken off in vision. They said it was a very solemn place as she was in vision. They recognized the Lord was giving her a message. And then she got up and spoke after the vision. And she said, there's not a person in this house who has ever dreamed of the trouble that is coming upon this land. People are making sport of the secession ordinance of South Carolina, but I have just been shown that a large number of states are going to join that state, and there will be a most what? Terrible war. She went on to say, 
In this vision, I've seen large armies of both sides gathered on the field of battle. I heard the booming of the cannon and saw the dead and dying on every hand. Then I saw them rushing up, engaged in hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Then I saw the field after the battle, all covered with the dead and dying. Then I was carried to prison and saw the suffering of those in want who were wasting away. Then I was taken to the homes of those who had lost husbands, sons, or brothers in the war. I saw their distress and anguish. Then looking slowly around the house, she said, there are those in this house who will lose sons in that war. In other words, she had visited their homes after their sons had died and recognized them from the vision. She was ridiculed tremendously for this vision. This was proof, her, her scorners thought, that this woman is a lunatic and she is not a true prophet. By March 1861, by the way, it was in March when he took the oath of office, seven states had already seceded in response to his election. April 12, 1861, South Carolina fired the first shots and forcibly took over Fort Sumter held by the U.S. Army, which was then called the Union Army. Two days later, Abe Lincoln asked for a volunteer army of 75,000 individuals to respond and the most terrible war then ensued. And at first, the North was not doing very well in this war. The South was winning. They won the Fort Sumter one. They kept winning in different places. And a lot of the battlefield was just getting rid of Union forces and Union strongholds in the, in the South. And, uh, uh, advancing upon that army. Abe Lincoln asked his friend Robert E. Lee to be the general of the Union forces. Robert E. Lee was against the secession of Virginia. He did not want Virginia to secede. But Robert E. Lee said, I'm going to stand with my state. And they asked him to be the general. And he ended up joining the South. And of course, he was a far better general. And as a result of his leadership, and what seemed to be the fumbling of the North generals. Uh, the, uh, the North was losing battle after battle. In the end, 623,026 people died in the Civil War, more than all U.S. wars combined. After this war began, you remember it was 1861, and we could see the fumbling and the bad things that were happening that no one really anticipated in the North that it was going to be this struggle. Ellen White wrote this, Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free and that ye break every yoke? She said, When our nation observes the fast which God has chosen, then he will accept their prayers as far as the war is concerned. But now they enter not into his ear. Who was she giving that advice to? She was giving it to our nation. She was giving it to our leaders. She was giving it to the people. But she was also giving it to our country's leader. Now, you might say, he, he didn't need to hear that advice. He already believed 
that the slaves should be free. He had articulated it. He had tried to get even Congress to vote on it. And, you know, now that the secession occurred, we now just had the North. It should be an easy vote. But the North did not want to vote to free the slaves in Congress. First battle in the Civil War to take place on Union soil occurred outside Sharpsburg, Maryland. Robert E. Lee took the Battle of Maryland. This was the first battle that came to the Union. And he took it to Maryland to help uh, Maryland become a Confederate state, one of, that, one of the reasons. Maryland was primarily, of course, Roman Catholic, and Roman Catholics very much were sympathetic with the Confederates. It was actually almost a miraculous thing that Maryland did not join them. A few of their leaders prevented that from happening, but if you would have taken a poll at large, they would have actually seceded as well and joined the South. And he thought if we just take it to the battle and have them suffer casualties and loss, etc., they might come over to our side. He also wanted to discourage the North into thinking the war could not be won or was no longer worth fighting. When they were taking over their cornfields and feeding their army out of the, uh, forcibly feeding the army out of the North, and uh, doing uh, a significant battle and significant losses, the North would raise the question as to whether this was worth it or not. It turned out to be the bloodiest day in U.S. military history. 23,000 casualties from one day of fighting. And the North did not win that battle. Neither did the South. It was kind of a draw in a way, about e almost equal number of casualties on both sides, and no real advancement took place by either army. And so Abraham Lincoln had this thought come to him. He knew politically it was the wrong thing to do. He knew his advisors were saying, if we want them to join the union again, we will need to give up this pet issue. He also was under the influence of counselors that said preserving the Union is more important than this slavery issue. And we know it's a big issue for you, but you need to put it aside. Remember, put differences aside so that we can get together again and prevent loss of life and prevent all of this bloody war. Nathan Green did a painting recently, and I'm going to ask Abraham Lincoln, who was the actor in that painting, to uh, come out at this time. Uh, I didn't know this till just uh, coming here today. I mentioned to, I happened to meet uh, Chet yesterday and talk to him about. I'm going to talk about Abraham Lincoln, uh, and uh, he uh, uh, mentioned. I said, you know, have you seen those paintings this morning about Nathan Green? Uh, let me see if I, I can have you respond to that. Go ahead and say. I said, yes, I had the privilege of sitting in his studio for the painting of those pictures. <laughs> so uh, he was the model. Uh, and uh, that painting took place on the battlefield after that battle. Abraham Lincoln came to visit the sick and the dying on both sides. He had, we had compassion for both sides, and he wanted to be there. But he particularly was upset at McClellan for not having the courage and being very defensive in this whole thing, and just having that timidity. And he was trying to figure out what to do with his general as well. And so Abraham Lincoln 
spent time reading the Bible, searching for answers in this dilemma that he had faced. He prayed about it. And so Nathan Green, great artist he is, has captured the Lincoln in me and put it on, on, on canvas. McClellan didn't have much warning of him coming. They got a tent together ready for him. But Abraham Lincoln had just lost an 11-year-old son in the White House to tuberculosis. He was still mourning that significant loss in his life. You can see the evidence of that mourning in the painting. You can see the background, the concern on Abraham Lincoln's face as he is kneeling down and praying to the Lord. Thank you very much. I wish you could see the painting, but uh, Heart Research wasn't able to... uh, Get me a copy of it yet. Well, I have some with me, not the large paintings, but if you come to your story hours booth, booth, and that word booth kind of frightens me, I want to duck when I hear booth, (laughs) Uh, I'll be glad to let you see those pictures. And thank you, Dr. Neal, for what you're doing here this morning. So it depicts the loneliness of true leadership. By the way, if you're a true leader, you're going to have problems with loneliness significant loneliness. And the painting also depicts the reliance on following fixed principles, the reading of the Word of God and the dependence upon God. In fact, Abraham Lincoln said this, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. All of you in this room are leaders in one sense or another. In other words, you have influence on other individuals. And if you don't feel the overwhelming conviction that you have no place else to go in your influence of others but your needs, you're not exhibiting the true leadership that the Lord would have you. Well, within days of the battle of Antietam, he followed the Lord's plan as described by Ellen White. He wrote the draft of the Emancipation Act that was enacted on January 1, 1863. It's very clear that he wrote that in September right about the time of that battle, either somewhat before or afterwards, and this executed the freeing of the slaves. As mayor of Washington, D.C., he not only freed the slaves, but he built homes for the freed slaves that had no place to go. And so, and he put into action his beliefs, even though no one else around him was really willing to do that, or at least in a corporate manner. And by the way, you may wonder why Washington, D.C. is over 90% African-American. That's the reason. It was about 0% prior to Abraham Lincoln freeing the slaves and recognizing so many of them didn't have a place to go. He was able, as mayor, to build quickly um, housing that is still used to this day. If you go to Washington, D.C., you'll still see the housing. You'll still see the descendants of those slaves living there. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated the proposition that what? All men are created equal. He would emphasize that. This is, of course, his most famous speech at Gettysburg after another loss. We here highly resolve that the dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have had a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. He did not want the dead to die in vain. And after that Emancipation Act of January 1, 1863, the North could not lose a battle. They still had bad generals, but now they were winning. What was happening? The Lord was intervening in their cause. 
And a lot of times the war is credited at the end of Ulysses S. Grant. He actually didn't become general until 1864 when a whole lot of victories had already been occurring. And Ulysses S. Grant, it turns out, wasn't that great of an individual. He was just leading an army that was on the Lord's side because now the Lord was intervening. Another vital character strength of, of leadership is graciousness and gratitude. And in the middle of this Civil War conflict, Abraham Lincoln pronounces a Thanksgiving proclamation. Now I should mention, Thanksgiving was done by the Puritans once. It was done after the Revolutionary War by George Washington one time. It had not become an annual event. Abraham Lincoln, in the middle of the Civil War, made it an annual event. And here's what he wrote about it. It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and provided by all history, that those nations are blessed whose God is the Lord. He goes on to say, we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world. May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. He didn't mince words. Of course, he wasn't just thinking about the slavery issue, but other sins as well. He says, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and, pre and preserving grace, too proud to, the pr to pray to the God that made us. Could it be that we're not praying because we're too proud? It has seemed to me fit and proper that God should solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledge, as with one heart and one voice, by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November as a day of thanksgiving and to praise our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. Signed, Abe Lincoln, October 3, 1863. In the middle of this conflict, he broke, breaks forth with gratitude and thanks to God. Then when he was reelected, he said this, with malice toward none. He didn't have malice. With charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. He would die a few days after that inaugural address, first assassinated president by a conspiracy of those who were upset at this whole aspect of things. And uh, it was five days before Robert E. Lee surrendered. So he died before the Civil War was over with. Uh, but I would like to uh, end with a few character strengths uh, that need to be cultivated for true leadership uh, that were exemplified by Lincoln and need to be exemplified by us in our leadership.
Courage exemplifies true leadership. Strengths of courage entail the exercise of the will to accomplish goals in the face of opposition, either internal or external. There are four aspects of courage. One is bravery and valor. Two is persistence. Three is integrity, authenticity, and honesty. And four, I'm sorry about this in the way it came forward, four is vitality. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. Courageous action must be voluntary. Coerced action does not qualify. So if it's coerced, it's not courageous. Must also involve judgment and understanding of risk and acceptance of the consequences of action. Bravery requires the presence of danger, loss, risk, or potential injury. Without a sense of danger, risk, or vulnerability, there is no bravery in the act. Bravery is valuable because it allows people to dampen their immediate response to danger and evaluate the appropriate course of action. It involves the mastery of fear rather than fearlessness. Some people are, uh, are credited for being fearless. That is immaturity. That is not a leadership quality. But bravery involves the mastery of fear. Bravery is doing what is right, including confronting the status quo or opposing an unhealthy idea, and as such raises the moral and social conscience of a society. Being of service to others and acting toward a higher purpose is also involved in bravery. And, it, and related to the root word of courage is the word, what? Encouragement, which refers literally to giving heart to another. This comes from Character, Strengths, and Virtues. Uh, you can see the uh, pages that are there. And this character strength has been well uh, studied, and it's encouraging uh, to look at the scientific evidence behind it. Bravery in the face of imminent death is not the equivalent of fearlessness because fear is certainly experience. Bravery is the ability to do what needs to be done despite fear, doing the unpopular but correct thing. One of the examples of bravery is facing a terminal illness with equanimity, resisting peer pressure regarding a morally questionable shortcut. Bravery, in and of itself, it turns out is fulfilling. Scientific studies have shown it. We feel good when we do the right thing, whether standing up for justice in the face of an angry group or standing up and saying what needs to be said despite knocking knees. It's actually good for us and good for those who hear it. When we act regardless of our fear, we are fulfilled. The term heroic is a synonym for bravery. Bravery is elevation of others is invariably produced because we observe bravery when we hear about it or when we just observe it, we will actually be encouraged. By the way, every one of these character strengths looks at what will it do to others? Will it elevate others around us to have that character strength or will it demote others? And they clearly state the evidence shows that it elevates others. We know of the 9-11 heroes, the signers of the Declaration of Independence. What a brave act that was and how many lost their life and homes. Jonathan and his armor bearer, tremendous bravery. Gideon and his band of 300. Desmond Doss and other Medal of Honor winners are, uh, are certainly uh, examples of this. The opposite of bravery, sometimes it's good to look at the opposite. Cowardice, spinelessness, 
can lead to paralyzing anxieties. Examples of this would be Pontius Pilate, and we know what happened when he exhibited the opposite of bravery and how he, he died in obscurity. Failure to intervene in an emergency. Sometimes I call that pluralistic ignorance. What does that mean? Relying on the inaction of others to encode a circumstance as not requiring action. This might be an excuse when matters are truly ambiguous, but that is not bravery, it's the opposite of it. When we know what needs to be done but refrain out of fear, we are not ignorant but cowardly. True leadership, interestingly, Moses had his men step into the Red Sea and keep going, relying upon the Lord. Moses had articulated the plan of the Lord very well, but it wasn't until he enacted the plan of the Lord under tremendous sentence of death that the Lord blessed. And so it is with Abe Lincoln as well. He not only articulated the truth and asked that it be adopted, he finally acted upon that truth alone. And then the Lord blessed. The second aspect of courage is persistence. Perseverance is sometimes used for the term. Industriousness, finishing what one has started, keeping on despite obstacles. Sometimes we call it taking care of business. Getting to the place where we can achieve closure, staying on task, getting it off the desk and out the door would be uh, one of the leadership uh, qualities that can occur today. When, when sustained activity results from an internal strength as opposed to threats or deadlines, it's highly engaging. Shouldn't be threats or deadlines that have us perform. It should be that internal strength. When the activity is complete, studies show it produces satisfaction. And of course, we admire the busy bee, the ant. We admire the tortoise, but not the hare, and the little engine that could. And we don't admire them necessarily because they win, but because of their persistence. And persistence itself can be satisfying. Long distance race. Have you noticed the onlookers cheer the stragglers as much as the winners, so long as the slow-footed runners actually cross the finish line? Persistence. We also enjoy watching the Special Olympians, not just the winners, because of that persistence. And we need to exemplify that persistence in leadership today. The opposite of persistence is laziness, sloth, giving up, not trying, losing heart, losing interest, taking shortcuts, cutting corners, going for the quick fix, vacillation, and sometimes it's called helpless. We tend to say these individuals are helpless. No, they just have the opposite of persistence. Does not persevere at difficult tasks even when effort would be rewarded. That's what sometimes is misnamed helpless. Individuals who don't persevere at difficult tasks when, when, even, when effort would actually be rewarded. Thomas Edison is an example of persistence. He tried more than 6,000 substances before hitting on carbonized cotton thread as a useful filament for the electric light bulb. He said genius is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. Abraham Lincoln, of course, lost six elections, failed in two businesses. Jacob persisted that entire night fighting someone far more powerful than him, saying, Lord, I will not let you go until you bless me. Persistence in prayer. 
Elijah persistent, even though he accomplished the Lord's will at Mount Carmel, persistently praying for the Lord to intervene and for rain to come. And not just doing it once, but seven times. Ellen White, in her persistence, continuing to write counsel for us, recognizing that if she didn't, that counsel would be forever lost. And right and being the most prolific um, American uh, female spiritual uh, writer, uh, getting up in the middle of the night to write, persistence. Integrity is the third aspect. That involves truthfulness, honesty, but also retaking responsibility for how one feels and what one does. Taking responsibility in general, but also for your own feelings. That's part of cognitive behavioral therapy. And then finally, vitality. Having zest and enthusiasm and vigor and energy. These things feel good. There's a subjective feeling of engagement and satisfaction are part of its definition. So there can be some significant satisfying aspects of true leadership. So my recommendation for each one of you gathered here this morning is to be a true leader. Be a leader that takes hold of truth, looks at the situation around you, and knows how to apply that truth so that it can be transformational to the group around you. In following the Lord's vision, let's not remember the blessed hope, that future-mindedness that's part of our name, and the willingness to even put into action unpopular ideas uh, that can be politically incorrect. When we get a majority of people to vote for us and then advance the agenda, that's not necessarily courageous. It's when there's a minority that see the truth and you lead and protect that minority viewpoint because it is true. That is part of true leadership. Well, I'd like to close with someone who was an example uh, for me uh, in my younger years. Burnell Baldwin is dying presently in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He's a neuroscientist that taught me a lot of the foundational things on the frontal lobe of the brain, uh, some of that I mentioned uh, yesterday. He had made the decision to have no more external care last Saturday night and that he would just die in peace. He still had a sound mind. He might still have that sound mind now. He's, he's very close uh, to passing. He's at peace, assured with God's salvation. He's one that took unpopular viewpoints and forwarded them. He's one that exemplified some courage and persistence, bravery, and having those intelligences that were very important, even that sense of humor that even Abraham Lincoln had. And he said, everything is ready. I'm ready to go. Except, he said. By the way, he was a reminder of my own father uh, in, a, in a way in passing. He's been a, uh, those that have had an influence over you are kind of, in, that are older, kind of like mother and father. And uh, he was in a position with his sound mind and knowing that he was dying, he was in a position to provide me significant counsel. 
I told him, Burnell, I desire to gather around you like Jacob's sons gathered around them and heard the last words of counsel. I said, I can't be there, but I'm on the phone. And can you give me your final words of counsel? First, I gave him encouragement. I said, Burnell, it won't be long. It'll just be a few hours for you and we're going to be taking the, you're going to be taking that tremendous trip, that seven-day trip in the presence of the Lord. What a, what a beautiful thing to look forward to, going to that blessed hope. And he had that blessed hope in mind as well. My father did not have the opportunity to counsel me. His death was sudden and unexpected. And I always had wished that it wasn't that way so that I could have heard counsel from him. He was a, such a great counselor. What would have been his final words? I would have loved to have heard them. So as a reminder of my own father, I wanted to hear Burnell's final words. And how I had the opportunity of hearing that was because he said, everything is ready except. I won't tell you the, what the except was, but the except was something that he had a tremendous concern for that it go forward. And I'll just mention to you, it had a, a, um, has something to do with the Journal of Health and Healing that he has been so prominent for. And he particularly wanted to get in touch with Dr. DeRose, and Dr. DeRose could not be gotten in touch with that morning. And not knowing how long he would be of sound mind, it was on me to get in touch with Dr. DeRose. I had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Burnell. And his final words when I said, I'm ready for the council. He had given some encouraging things about what's happening at Weimar, how he agrees with the direction that Weimar is going and the leadership that was there. He had mentioned that as part of his closing words. But he said, my counsel to you is simple. Follow what's written in the books, what's written in the council. Follow it comprehensively and enact it on behalf of Weimar and your own life, and I will see you in the morning. We've been given tremendous counsel, and I subject to you today that if Abraham Lincoln did not follow the counsel of Ellen White and what she wrote in January 4, 1862, we would not be here today. And I don't know if he actually specifically saw it, but I'm sure he had come in, in touch with those who recognized that need. I don't have evidence necessarily that he saw it, but I do know that he followed the counsel. He may have gotten, the, if he didn't have the opportunity of seeing it, the Lord might have given him that counsel through that special prayer he was giving at Antietam. But nonetheless, he followed the counsel, and the Lord blessed. And that counsel has not been just written for me. It's been written for each one of you. Follow that precious counsel, and I will see you. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.